exist to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. One of my favorite TV shows of all time is a show called The West Wing. It's a show all about the men and women who work in the White House, and I probably watched every episode at least five or six times. It's got great acting, great writing, and, and it's a show that I've discovered a lot of pastors in particular can relate to because in the, in the show, the characters are always struggling to choose between what's wise politically and, and what fits their actual ideals. And when you watch the show, you're naturally rooting for the main characters. But the problem that I have oftentimes is that in the show, evangelical Christians are always the enemy. In the West Wing, evangelical Christians are always these mean-spirited fundamentalists who want to, quote, impose their version of Leviticus on the rest of the country. But I'm telling you, the writing is so good that I find myself saying, you go, Mr. President, you stand up to those crazy Christians. I find myself rooting against the Christians in the show because most of the time I can just blow it off. I know it's a good show and I disagree with the ideals and the politics of the show. But there is one scene that does bug me every time that I watch it. It's this scene when the White House is hosting an event for influential radio hosts. And the president enters the room and everyone, of course, stands except for one woman. And the president begins to give a little speech welcoming everyone, but he's distracted because he noticed this woman who's seated, and he asks her, I'm sorry, uh, are you Dr. Jenna Jacobs, right? She says, yes, sir. He replies, I like your show. I like how you call homosexuality an abomination. The woman responds, I don't say homosexuality is an abomination, Mr. President. The Bible does. The president, yes, it does, Leviticus. And the woman quickly responds with a chapter and verse. Leviticus 18.22, one of the verses we studied just a few weeks ago. And so the president says, I wanted to ask you a couple questions while I had you here. My chief of staff insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly says he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill myself or is it okay to call the police? Here's one that's really important because we've got a lot of sports fans in this town. Touching the skin of a dead pig makes one unclean. Leviticus 11.7. If they promise to wear gloves, can the Washington Redskins still play football? Can Notre Dame? Can West Point? Does the whole town really have to be together to stone my brother John for planting two different crops side by side? Can I burn my mother in a small family gathering for wearing garments made from two different threads? Think about those questions, would you? One last thing. In this building, when the president stands, nobody sits. And of course, this radio show host, she is totally speechless. And she awkwardly looks around at everyone staring at her. There's awkward silence. And then she stands up awkwardly and he walks out of the room. And the clear moral of the story was that this woman was hypocritically picking and choosing which parts of the Bible to believe. And so when we come to the book of Leviticus, I think it is fair to ask the question, is that what we're doing? Are we as Christians, hypocritically picking and choosing which parts of the Bible to believe. Because listen, if that is what we're doing, we need to repent. Does this mean that we should just get rid of the whole Old Testament? Or if the whole Bible is really the word of God, does that mean that we need to follow all of these laws in the Old Testament? Or let me ask, is there a reasonable way that we as Christians living on this side of the cross, is there any reasonable way that we can separate laws that apply for today and laws that don't? 
Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 20. If you're using a pew Bible, Leviticus 20 is on page 116. And as you're turning, let me tell you that in Leviticus, we have studied a lot of difficult passages. Uh, Some of them have been difficult because they've been bloody and weird. Some of them have been confusing and hard to understand. But Leviticus 20 is a hard chapter because this chapter seems incredibly harsh to us as modern Americans. Because the most common punishment for breaking the laws in this chapter is the death penalty. But let me tell you, church, that as harsh as this chapter is going to sound to our natural ears, if you are a Christian, you need to know why chapters like this are in our Bibles. I'm going to argue that as Christians, we are no longer bound to follow most of the laws in this chapter. However, this passage still contains priceless wisdom that we need today. In this day and age, because in this passage, we learn what God's people should value in light of what God forbids. And my prayer this morning is that we would understand the wisdom of God's laws. Because in Leviticus 20, we're going to find three truths treasured by the Lord's people. The first truth treasured by the Lord's people is that we are to treat the Lord's name as sacred. We'll see that in verses 1 through 7. Second, in verses 8 through 21, we are to treat the family as sacred. And third, in verses 22 through 27, we are to treat the promised land as sacred. Three sacred truths. We are to treat the Lord's name, the family, and the promised land as sacred. So on that note, let's pray. Father in heaven, we seek your help now to understand your word. For we know that without your spirit, we can understand nothing. So give us hearts ready to receive your truth. Guide us, guide me, that I may speak your word clearly, boldly, and humbly. And that this morning, your spirit may use my words so that the sermon that is heard be far better than the one that is preached. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Before we dive into this text, we do have to answer this one question. Why are the laws in Leviticus 20 so harsh? What do we do with all these strange laws that call for capital punishment? Well, I want to give you seven things to remember that will help you understand these laws. First, these laws valued human life above property. In ancient Babylon, you would get the death penalty for breaking and entering, for looting during a fire, and for petty theft. While at the same time, if you murdered someone in ancient Babylon, you could just pay a fine. In Israel, you have the reversal of that. In the Bible, crimes against property required repayment, but never death. While on the other hand, murder warranted the death penalty because man was made in God's image. Second, these laws protected the innocent. It was far too common in the ancient world that if you committed a crime, not only would you be put to death, but your entire family. But in Deuteronomy, we're told that every man shall be put to death for their own sins. Only the one who committed the crime could be punished. Third, these laws were meant to be applied in court. In the New Testament, we do see the Pharisees trying to stone Jesus several times as an angry mob. But that's not the way these laws were meant to be enforced. In the Bible, before anyone could be executed, they had to go to trial. They had to have two or three witnesses. And there would be judges who would decide the case. This is not mob rule or vigilante justice. Fourth, these laws were meant to be strong deterrents. Back in Israel, there was no police force. There were no prisons. 
So to keep order, these laws were meant to deter anyone from even coming close to committing any of these practices. Or in the words of Deuteronomy 19, and they shall hear and fear and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Fifth, these laws were the maximum penalty, not the standard penalty. In cases of murder, we are explicitly told that you cannot pay a ransom to escape the death penalty. But for lesser offenses, it seems like you could, in fact, pay a ransom. Depending on the seriousness of the offenses, depending on the circumstances, the judges in Israel were free to hand out lesser penalties. Which is why we so rarely see the death penalty actually being enforced within the Bible. And outside of the Bible, there is no evidence the death penalty was ever issued for any of the crimes in Leviticus 20. Sixth. Even though there are over 30 capital offenses in the Old Testament, that is still much less than the actual number of capital offenses. For instance, when we read Romans, that the wages of sin is death, that was not metaphorical. When we read Ezekiel, that the soul that sins shall die, that is not symbolism. Remember the terms of creation when God said, the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Every capital offense that is not listed in this chapter is merely God's mercy. And every capital offense listed is merely God's justice. None of it is injustice. And seventh, and this one's important for our time, these laws were given specifically to the nation of Israel. Throughout Christian history, theologians have divided the laws of the Old Testament into three categories. The moral law, the ceremonial law, in the civil law. The moral laws are the laws that apply to all t- times and circumstances like the Ten Commandments. The ceremonial laws were the laws given to Israel that were all the laws surrounding the sacrificial system and they were meant to keep the Israelites ceremonially clean. And then the civil laws were the governmental laws given to Israel. And all these laws were given for a specific purpose. They were meant to mark Israel as the people of God, to separate them from the nations, as the nation, as the people from whom the promised Messiah would one day come. All these laws were meant to preserve the holiness of Israel and also to point forward to the day when this promised Messiah would come and offer his own life as a sacrifice for sin. And so when Jesus came and sacrificed his life on the cross, he fulfilled the demands of the ceremonial law. And by dying for the world, not just the Jews alone, but also Gentiles, Jesus tore down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And now, God's people are not defined by ethnicity or nationality, but by faith in Jesus. And so Christ demands, or Christ fulfilled the demands of the civil law as well. The ceremonial and civil laws were like scaffolding you see on a buildings that are being constructed. And when the building is finally built, you take down the scaffolding because it served its purpose. And in the same way, once Jesus came, it was no longer necessary for the people of God to be bound by the civil or the ceremonial laws. So to answer my original question, why are the laws in Leviticus 20 so harsh? They seem harsh to us only if we ignore the cruelty of the laws of the age they were given in. They seem harsh to us only if we ignore the full picture of how these laws were to be enforced biblically. 
They seem harsh to us only if we ignore the absolute holiness of God and the seriousness of sin. When these laws were given, they would have been revolutionary in that day. It actually says in Deuteronomy that all the nations are going to look upon you, Israel, and say, what nation has such righteous of laws? It would have changed everything. These laws would have been a sign to the nations that Israel was a land of justice and order. And now that Christ has come, we recognize that we are no longer bound by Israel's civil laws. But even though we're no longer bound by these laws, we still find three treasured truths of God's people in this passage. Starting with the fact that we are to treat the Lord's name as sacred. Look with me to verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Moloch, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given one of his children to Moloch to make my sanctuary unclean and to profane my holy name. Stop there. Moloch was an ancient god of the Ammonites. They would be neighbors to the Israelites just west of Israel. And in the land of Ammon, they would offer their children to Moloch by burning them alive at the altar of Moloch a truly wicked and despicable practice. And so God is making it perfectly clear, whether you're a foreigner in the land of Israel or a natural-born citizen, if anyone gives one of his children to Moloch, they will be stoned. Why stoning? Because everyone in the community was called to participate in condemning this heinous sin. What would happen if you didn't participate? We'll look to verse 4. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to the man when he gives one of his children to Moloch and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Moloch. Stop there. It has always been a temptation for people to turn a blind eye to sin and to sweep it under the rug. I think that's even why we're at a point in the American church where more and more abusers within the church are finally being exposed and brought to justice. And it's horrifying to hear these stories, but let me tell you why it's good news. Because for decades and decades, when abuse happened within the church, instead of going to the authorities like they should have, too many churches covered it up to protect their own reputation, the reputation of their pastor, the reputation of the church. I think that we are in a day of reckoning where people are realizing we can hide this stuff no more. And that means in the future, our churches will be safer and that victims will be given justice and those who abuse the weak will be brought to justice. But here in verses four to five, I I think this is amazing. We find that turning a blind eye to evil, it is not gracious. It is not loving. It is not merciful. It actually makes you complicit in their sin. And in the end, it does not protect the church's reputation or the pastor's reputation or Christ's reputation. If you look back to verse 3, it actually profanes the name of the Lord when we turn a blind eye to sin. When we think of taking God's name in vain, of profaning the Lord's name, we usually think of using God's name as a cuss word. And taking his name in vain is that, but that is not all it is. The Israelites were the people of God. Israel was described as God's own bride. 
And that's why in verse 5, God describes idolatry as spiritual adultery in, in some pretty intense terms. And so as God's bride, they were called to carry the name of the Lord like a, a spouse who takes the last name of her husband. And so it wasn't just sin for murdering their children. It was also a form of blasphemy. Children are the product of that sacred union between a husband and a wife. They are divine image bearers, gifts from the Lord himself. And so to destroy a fellow image bearer isn't simply murder. It's also an affront to the creator. And sadly, human sacrifice has been far too common throughout the world, throughout all of history. And no matter where you go, usually children were the victims. Because everywhere in the world, people recognize that if you want to appease the wrath of whatever God you're worshiping, you need someone who's pure. That's why even in Central America, the Aztecs would sacrifice virgins. And, and there was this thought in the ancient world, especially in the Middle East, that babies could not feel pain because they weren't fully human. They were not fully developed. They thought they did not feel any pain. In the ancient world, they dehumanized their own children so that they could justify the murder of them. And today, in our country, when it comes to unborn children, what do people say? It's just a clump of cells. It's not a person. It's not human yet. Doesn't feel pain. But the more and more we learn about the science of the unborn, the more we realize that none of that is true. Today, we have ultrasound videos of unborn babies at 18 weeks, smiling, clapping, sucking their thumbs. Today, we know that a baby's heartbeat starts beating at five weeks after conception. And we know that at conception, a baby has a DNA sequence distinct from their mother. A DNA sequence that no one in human history has ever had and no one to follow ever will. And even if none of that was true, even if we didn't have any of that scientific information, we have the Word of God, and the Bible clearly teaches that the unborn are human beings made in the image of God. There are many passages we could go to, but just one of the clearest. When Jesus was conceived and the angel visited Joseph, he told Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. At the moment of conception, Jesus was called a child by the power of the Spirit. Throughout the Bible, even unborn babies are considered human beings, given the same rights as human beings. If a pregnant woman in Israel was struck in her belly that she did not die, but her unborn baby was die, would die, the person who struck her would be put to death. They were given the death penalty because that unborn child was considered a human being deserving of equal protection. And I think that in the future, people will shake their heads in disgust at us in the same way we do now with those who gave their children to Moloch. In Leviticus 20, this practice was especially offensive to God because the Israelites, as God's earthly representatives, were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to worship the Lord alone. That's why verses 6 through 7 con uh, condemn going to see mediums or necromancers, because the Lord was supposed to be their sole source of guidance, of direction, of truth. What would it communicate to the surrounding nations if the Israelites were going to Moloch and mediums and necromancers instead of going to the Lord? It would communicate that they trusted their God less than the hacks around them. It would communicate that the Israelites did not trust the Lord or his word. 
And that's why in the last verse of this chapter, those who are mediums or necromancers would also face the death penalty for their sins. Because Israel was to be a nation that trusted in the Lord and honored the Lord alone. Why? Because their God was holy. And as his people, the Israelites were called to carry his name. And the same is true for us as Christians, because in the New Testament, do you know who God's bride is? The church. We are, in Ephesians 5, we are called the bride of Christ in the exact same way that Israel was called the Lord's bride. Jesus called us the light of the world in the exact same way that Israel was meant to be a light to the nations. And now Christians are called to carry the name of Christ as his ambassadors in the exact same way the Israelites were meant to be God's ambassadors. And so as a church, what that means is that we do not sweep sin under the rug. That does not protect our reputation or the Lord's reputation. Instead, it profanes his reputation. We have to think first and foremost of what it means to honor the Lord's name as sacred before we ever worry about our own personal reputations. Now, there is an elephant in the room in these verses that I think we need to address when it comes to the business of child sacrifice. You know, there are people out there that call the cross of Jesus cosmic child abuse. There are some that will say Yahweh is no better than Moloch because what kind of a father sacrifices his own son? That, that Yahweh was no better than these Ammonites who sacrificed their children. Well, Is Christianity a religion founded upon child sacrifice? Let me say, absolutely not. There is a major difference between what the Ammonites did when they sacrificed their children to Moloch and what Jesus did on the cross. The Ammonites took the life of an innocent child to satisfy Moloch's wrath and to save themselves. But in Christianity, it's God who offers his own son to satisfy his own wrath against undeserving sinners. In Christianity... Christ's life was not taken. He was no victim. He laid it down voluntarily. He was a perfect, innocent life. The only human being who could have ever represented mankind on the cross. That the cruelty of the Ammonites is the total opposite of the love of Calvary. Because God did not send his son out of fear or superstition. But he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that whoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. And I do have to say one more thing when it comes to the issue of abortion. Statistically, one in four women in America have had abortions in their lifetime. And so if you've gone through that, let me say to you, sister, there is forgiveness and healing found in the cross of Christ. I am sure a passage like this will leave you feeling condemned and guilty, but know that Christ has died for every kind of sin and every kind of sinners. And if you confess your sin to him and trust in him, then one day you will be with your child in paradise. At Horican Baptist Church, our heart is not to condemn you. We want to defend the lives of the unborn. But we also want uh, want you to find grace and mercy through the gospel. And our desire is to love you and serve you no matter what your past. Because that's always what it means to trust the name of the Lord. To treat it as sacred. And that leads me to the second treasure truth of this passage. 
we are to treat the family as sacred. Look with me to verses 8 and 9. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. Once again, we have to stop here. And we have to say context is everything in a verse like this. If you read on in the Torah, if you go on to the book of Deuteronomy, it actually explains what it looks like to curse your parents. It says, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders in his city, this is our son. He is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. This verse is not talking about a toddler throwing a tantrum at the supermarket. These verses are talking about someone in all-out rebellion against father and mother. Someone who is a glutton and a drunkard and who refuses to repent even when they're brought to the elders of the city. And once again, with a law like this on the books, I suspect no one came anywhere near breaking it which is why there's no record of the death sentence ever being implemented for this crime. But the reason you see such a dire punishment for cursing parents is because the authority that parents have over their children was given to them by God. So to curse your father and your mother is in a sense to curse God who gave them that authority. In verses 8 through 21, these are verses all about the sacred nature of the family. Verses 8 through 9 start with honoring your parents because that's the foundation of order within a family. And then in verses 10 through 21, we see a list of sins all having to do with sexual immorality. If you read these verses, they should seem familiar because these are the exact same sins and laws that we saw in Leviticus 18. You'll find the sins that are condemned in chapter 20 are the same sins in chapter 18. The difference from chapter 18 is that chapter 18 was warning the Israelites as individuals not to commit those sins. In chapter 20, the Israelites as a community are told how to punish someone when they do commit those same sins. And and we talked through every single one of the sins in this list two weeks ago. And for that reason, I'm not going to go into the detail of every one of those sins. You can go listen to the sermon on Leviticus 18 or come and ask me questions. But I will give a caveat for these verses. Not all of these laws in verses 10 through 21 apply to today. I definitely argue that the civil punishments do not apply, but there are moral aspects of these laws that are clearly for today. So I'll say, if you're ever unsure if an Old Testament law applies to today, here's three good rules. First, if the law is clearly repeated in the New Testament, definitely for today. Second, if a law is clearly suspended in the New Testament, it does not apply We're told in the books of Acts, you can eat bacon-wrapped shrimp to your heart's content because the dietary laws don't apply to us as Christians. Third, if it's rooted in creation, it applies to all times. So when we look again at these verses, most of these commands are in fact rooted in God's garden design that in the beginning, God designed marriage to be a lifelong covenant between one man of one family and one woman from another family. That is the consistent teaching of the scriptures. And in Matthew 19, when the Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce, he answered them by quoting Genesis. Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? 
and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In these verses in Leviticus, we see that sexual purity of the family was to be protected at all costs. Because when the family breaks down, all of society breaks down. Because not only is the name of the Lord to be treated as sacred, not only are we to treat the family as sacred, but the people of God are also to treat the promised land as sacred. That leads me to the end of this chapter. In verses 22 through 26, the Israelites were once again warned about what would happen if they disobeyed. The land they were entering was occupied by the Canaanites. But in verse 23, the Lord said he is going to drive them out of the land precisely because they practice all the things contained in this chapter. So in verse 22, the Israelites are sternly warned, don't assume the land will not vomit you out too if you follow in the Canaanites' footsteps. And once again, this is a picture of Adam and Eve, that when they sinned in the garden, they were exiled from the Garden of Eden. That the Israelites were heading into a new Garden Eden, a promised land, a new land where man could dwell with God and live in peace, just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. But just as Adam and Eve were exiled for their sin, so the Israelites would be exiled too if they practiced any of these detestable practices. If you keep reading in the storyline of the Bible, you'll learn that the Israelites did not heed this warning. Because by the time we get to King Solomon, Solomon built an altar for Molech right outside of the city of Jerusalem for one of his many pagan wives. And the Israelites followed in the footsteps of the Canaanites, and it would lead to the Babylonian exile, the time when God used the pagan nation of Babylon to destroy Jerusalem and carry away the survivors into exile. That's what we read about in the book of Daniel and his circumstance. That God cut them off like he promised would in this verse. Israel, in the end, made for a really sad new Garden of Eden. It was not the promised land they would hope for because they did not treat it as sacred. My prayer for us this morning is that we would understand the seriousness of sin and the wisdom of God's laws. Because in Leviticus 20, we found three sacred truths treasured by the Lord's people. We are to treat the name of the Lord the family and the promised land as sacred. So going back to the beginning, how would we respond to all those questions the president was asking us at the beginning? I think that we would answer him like this. First off, Mr. President, the White House Chief of Staff is not serving in Israel 3,000 years ago, so of course you should not kill him. Plus, in the New Testament, Jesus made it clear that you could work on the Sabbath when you absolutely had to. And since he's handling matters of national security as the White House chief of staff, he often needs to work on the Sabbath. We're also told explicitly in the book of Acts that none of the laws about eating pork or shrimp or touching the skin of a dead pig apply to us today. So yes, Notre Dame can still throw around the pigskin with a clear conscience. Also, your brother can plant different crops side by side and your mother can weave garments made from two different threads because they're also not living in Israel 3,000 years ago. But even if they were, there was no punishment for breaking either of those commands. They would not be burned. They would not be stoned. You just have to read. The one law the president should have cited was that in Leviticus 19, we're told to rise in the company for those who deserve honor and respect. So yes, 
Dr. Jacobs, that crazy fundamentalist, was being hypocritical, but not in the way that he thought she was. And I'd also say to him, if there's any questions about the sexual ethics of the Bible, the New Testament has more than enough to say on the issue. And so with all that out of the way now, how do we now as Christians in the New Covenant, how do we live and apply these laws to our lives? Well, I have four pastoral charges for you this morning. I have four ways we can apply these precious truths to our lives as Christians this very day. First pastoral charge, look to Christ to satisfy the law's demands. Look to Christ to satisfy the law's demands. The Bible says that the wages of sin and death, and what that means is that every time that we lie, every time that we're selfish, every time that we dishonor and disobey God, it's like we're clocking in for a job. Sin is our employer, and the wages we earn every time we clock in is death. But the good news is that the Bible also says that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, that no matter who you are or what you've done, All of us deserve death. And that's why Christ had to die once for the ungodly, that all who would repent of their sins and put their faith alone in his death on the cross may live life everlasting. So look to the one who satisfied the law's demands. Second pastoral charge. As Christ's people treat his name as sacred. As Christ's people treat his name as sacred. In the New Testament, we are no longer called to carry out stonings. But, it, but I also say that Paul uses the language of this very chapter, the language of cutting someone off, when he talks about church discipline. And in 1 Corinthians 5, there was the case of a man who was involved in gross, wicked sexual immorality. And the church thought they were being loving by overlooking it. But when Paul writes to them, he told them, this kind of sin isn't even tolerated among the Gentiles. And he told them, you need to cut him off from the church. Now, this does not mean that we kick out every member every time they sin. But it does mean that when members of the church are living in heavy-handed, unrepentant sin, there does come a point when we as a church are called to come together and remove them from membership. Not angrily, not out of vengeance, but to preserve the holiness of the church and also for the good of that brother and sister because we desperately want them to repent and come back into the fold. That's one way we're called to carry Christ's name in his church. Second pastoral charge, or third, I should say. As Christ's people, treat the family as sacred. As Christ's people, treat the family as sacred. Fathers and mothers have a weighty responsibility to raise their children in the faith. And children have an obligation to honor their parents. And when it comes to our sexual purity, we, re- we need to recognize that sex was God's idea. He designed it, and when God gives us guardrails to enjoy that gift, He knows what He's doing. A campfire can be beautiful and life-giving, but if the fire gets outside the boundaries made for it, it can become a destructive wildfire that's devastating to everything it touches. But when human beings enjoy sexual intimacy within the context of marriage it can be a god-glorifying endeavor and when families are preserved through marital faithfulness the lord is pleased and fourth pastoral charge as christ's people look forward to the promised land as christ's people look forward to the promised land in the new testament christians are also to look to a promised land 
Not the Jerusalem here on earth, but a new Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem, a heavenly Garden of Eden. And that is exactly what we find when we get to the end of the book of Revelation. When we get to the end of Revelation, we find that all those who have not believed in Jesus are cast into outer darkness, cast away from God's good presence, where the light of his face does not shine. But for the redeemed, for all those who have trusted in Christ, for all the people of God, sin and death will be destroyed when Christ is ours forevermore. And all the people said, let's pray. Sovereign Lord, you are the judge of all the earth. And today we're humbled by the reality that on our own, we deserve nothing but your righteous wrath. But we praise you, Lord, that through the righteousness of your son, we can call you father. May we honor your name as your children. And may we keep our hope anchored in all of your promises. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Oregon Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, If you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to horicanbaptist.com.